pitch perfect sing offs and humiliating the boys. These were some of the things a Spartan girl might learn as she grew up. I'll be talking about what life might have been for a girl and young woman in Sparta. And there's even a magic baby makeover story. So join me for Spartan Women Part 1. What have the Romans ever done for us? Hi, and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. Just to introduce myself, my name's Neil. So hello to all returning listeners, and welcome to the new ones. I seem to be getting at least a few things right, because my downloads are increasing. So thanks again for all your support. If you want to say hi, you can find me on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger. It's always great to hear from you. I only tweet about ancient history stuff, so if that's your thing, perhaps pop by. I've got a website, ancientblogger.com, where I put up content and links to my Facebook, YouTube and Instagram. Again, it's all ancient history content on there. I'm nothing if not consistent. Before we go any further, allow me to explain how I hope this podcast will work out. Initially, I was only going to do one podcast on Spartan women, but before I knew it, I had enough content to make two episodes. Part one will give you an overview of Spartan society and culture, because without this, it's difficult to consider the experience of a Spartan, full stop. I'll also briefly outline the experience of a male Spartan, because these give a very interesting contrast to how Spartan girls and young women were treated, and perhaps not as you might expect. I'll then move on to the life a Spartan girl and thus later a young woman might have experienced up until the age she was expected to be married, which was around 18 to 20. And in terms of date, I'll be setting this within the 5th century BCE. Marriage and motherhood will be the topic of the second podcast, which I'll release next month or thereabouts. To make sure you receive it, just hit subscribe wherever you've downloaded this episode or keep an ear and an eye out on Twitter. Needless to say, I had a number of sources to help me with my research into this, and I think it's only really fair for me to give them a mention. And you might even want to check them out if this subject gets a grip on you. Spartan Women by Professor Sarah Pomeroy was invaluable, as you might expect from a book with that title, and you'll probably hear me refer to her a number of times. Helen of Troy by Professor Bethany Hughes was also very useful and a great read in general. Professor Paul Cartledge's book on Spartans is a must for anyone who likes the topic of Spartans. And there are also some good articles you can find online by Professor Andrew G. Scott, Professor Cecilia Nabili and Professor Stephen Hodkinson, which deal with more specific aspects of Spartan culture. If you like listening to Spartan podcasts, the BBC4 radio series In Our Time did an episode on them a while back. And there's also the iTunes U podcast lecture series called Ancient Greek History featuring Professor Donald Kagan, which has a couple episodes about Sparta. Finally, we can begin, and I'll start by talking about Sparta, the place, and the people. Churchill once said of the USSR that it was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, and I think this is also an apt description of Sparta. Consider the myth of how Sparta developed. Apparently at some point in what we would refer to as the Archaic Period, A chap called Lycurgus showed up and transformed the society by enacting a new set of laws turning Sparta into a highly disciplined and military-based state. It's unclear if Lycurgus ever existed. Was he a founder retrospectively added to give the Spartan way of life gravitas? Or was he a way of explaining a range of reforms which the Spartan state underwent over a period of time? Or was there a person called Lycurgus who just set the ball rolling? Unless some dramatic evidence is unearthed, 
we are left with these possibilities. The city-state of Sparta is located in the southern Peloponnese and was known in antiquity as Lacedaemon. It sat in the valley of the river Eurotas. To the west stood the Taygetos Mountains, and to the east there was another mountain range with Mount Parnon. What we'll call Sparta was the main population centre, and this stood in the valley with the Eurotas River running alongside it. In the Archaic period, this suffered what's termed as the Dorian Invasion, which sounds a bit like a steampunk Victorian adventurer, but in fact was a movement of peoples known as the Dorians into this part of Greece. I should say that this is something still not agreed upon, but let's just go with it for the moment. They occupied a number of locations here, and one was Sparta. The local inhabitants were enslaved, and they came to form the Helots, who I'll go into a bit later on. Around the end of the 8th century BC, the Spartans expanded west into Messenia and conquered it. This gave them more land and more helots. Later on there was a second Messenian war, which is placed around 650 to 625 BCE, when the inhabitants revolted. I'm sure there's a joke there. This was resisted, and it's after this point that the Spartan constitution seems to have come into effect. The Spartan society resulting from all of this was about obedience to the state. As we'll see, the state controlled everything. Men were assigned to fight, and women to produce warrior soldiers. Of course, this is very simplistic, and one of the ironies which we'll see is that the restrictive form of government gave women a space which they were not afforded elsewhere in Greece. The Spartan government utilised a duarchy, that is to say, two kings. Both ruled, yet were far from possessing a type of kingship we might be familiar with. The obvious example of this is that there were two of them, this was so one could campaign whilst one ruled back home. It's also argued that this allowed for a check and balance, and avoided the sort of rivalries which occur when you have one position of power. The kings weren't just held to account by the other one. Each year, five men were elected to become ephors who kept several eyes on the kings. If one went on campaign, two would accompany him and report back later. The kings were also members of the Gerousia, a sort of Spartan senate. The Gerousia provided the wide Spartan assembly with the agenda upon which to vote and decide. To be in the assembly, you just had to be a Spartan male citizen. But it wasn't an assembly as you might think. It wasn't somewhere you could debate, you just voted. And even then, the Gerousia could overturn the decision. Just to recap then, we've got kings who aren't really kings, and an assembly where you can't debate. It's not technically madness, but it certainly was Sparta. This political system was dominated by men, but it also dominated them as well. The state owned you, and this was experienced from the moment a male Spartan took his first breath. Newborn Spartan boys were examined by the elders. If there were any physical deformities or abnormalities, the child was exposed and died as a result. Now, infanticide was by no means unusual in antiquity and in ancient Greece, but the Spartan twist was it was the state who made the decision, not the parents. Assuming the boy passed, he would then endure a different type of exposure, namely to the Spartan way of life. Newborns were not pampered. Plutarch wrote how they were used to being in the dark and being left alone. It was tough love from day one. The education of a Spartan boy might receive would be basic at best. His real learning began at the age of seven, when he was effectively taken from the family and into the agoge. This was a sort of state military education system where boys were grouped in packs and placed under the supervision of older males. 
These were most likely those in their 20s who'd graduated from it but weren't yet 30, which is when you'd normally get your citizenship. Defining the Agoge is difficult. I suppose you might consider it a military school, where boys were trained and developed into warriors. Life would have been tough. Each boy had a cloak and that was about it. They were deliberately underfed in order to accustom their bodies to hardship. Stealing was actively encouraged. Punishment for it was dealt out for being caught, not the actual act of stealing. Plutarch refers to a famous anecdote involving a fox cub. I've also read the animal as being a ferret. In any case, a boy hunts or steals, presumably he's going to eat it later, and he hides it under his cloak when there's an inspection called. Not wanting to give the game away, he lets the animal gnaw him before he drops dead. Whether or not we believe this happened, the point is that it aimed to wrap up the near-fanatical discipline a Spartan boy was imbued with into a neat anecdote. An event which did involve beating and stealing is reported by Xenophon at the sanctuary of Artemis Orthia. A platform was piled high with cheeses and guarded by adults with whips. Spartan youths were expected to endure the pain and steal as much cheese to prove their bravery and worth in front of the others watching. It's basically what Twitter looked like before the internet. The young Spartan male was constantly being reviewed and measured by both his peers and his seniors. Elium reports every 10 days young men were presented to the ephors. Any which seemed effeminate or overweight were beaten. But let's assume that the Spartan boy survived the very harsh terms his youth were afforded. At the age of 20, the Spartan male left the Agoge and moved into a Sicitia. I suppose you could best describe this as a barrack, which he shared with 14 other Spartans. The name of it refers to a meal which was taken in the evening and was compulsory. The Sicitia is what defined a Spartan male in several ways. It helped develop the bonds of loyalty and trust between its members, which were intended to enhance the army. You'd fight alongside these men. You were therefore always being assessed and checked by your fellows. Membership wasn't automatic. Cowardice or some negative behaviour might see you kicked out. You were also expected to contribute to your Sicitia from your Kleros, which I'll mention in a moment. And if you couldn't do this, your membership was ended. The Sicitia became a Spartan man's home and in a sense his family. And you might think of this as a Spartan state recreating a family unit for its own purposes. And we'll meet that as a common motif that rolls throughout the Spartan attitude towards both men and women. A Spartan male in his 20s was in a sort of limbo. He couldn't be a citizen until he was 30, so he couldn't hold office. And he wasn't even allowed in the marketplace. But on the upside, he could finally grow his hair long. At the age of 30, he was expected to marry, though it's suggested this might have happened earlier. This presented the Spartan male with something he'd not have much experience of, if any, a woman. I'll pick up on marriage in the second podcast episode, but bearing in mind that marriage didn't mean he'd leave his Sicitia. Living with other men in a communal format had been the only thing a Spartan man had known. It's generally accepted that marriage wouldn't alter this, and he'd continue to live as he'd previously done. If you wanted to visit your wife, then it had to be done secretly. There are arguments about why this was, and I've read that it's ensured that when a husband did meet his wife, it would result in a kind of encounter which would lead to the pitter-patter of tiny Spartan feet nine months after. But it also prevented any real sense of a family unit being developed, which ultimately might impinge on the loyalty a Spartan had to his state. Later in life, if he was lucky, he might make it to the Gerousia, but if he was really fortunate, he'd die in combat, which seems to be the only thing which made Spartan mothers proud. 
Spartan male citizens had one job, to fight and to die, and the Spartan society was set up to this end. Little wonder that it offered a range of opportunity to other people, although the Spartans barely classed them as such. The bulk of these were the Helots. The Helots were either the original inhabitants of Lacedaemon or the Messenians. They were state-owned slaves who were allotted to the farms or Cleroi, which supplied the Spartan families with their food, and as mentioned earlier, was so vital for a Spartan to qualify for his place in the Sicitia. They might also serve on campaign. At the Battle of Plataea in 479 BCE, the Spartan infantry numbered 35,000. It's likely Sparta could only field 7,000 of its citizens, which gives you an idea of the ratios involved. Long before Rome became paranoid over slave revolts, Sparta had those exact same nightmares about helots. Estimates for the number of helots in Sparta varies. In the early 4th century BCE, Pomeroy suggests there are around 170 to 240,000 helots. That's a ratio of 50 helots to every Spartan male citizen. This fear exerted a fair amount of pressure on the Spartan state. Young Spartans might be selected to make it into the Spartan spy service, the Cryptia, in which you were expected to kill a helot as part of your induction. Each year, Sparta declared war on the helots, and in part justified all of this through myth. Spartans were the returning sons of the Heraclidae, who had been kicked out of the region, so they were merely taking back what was theirs. With all this in mind, the continual screaming of freedom in the film 300 by ab-wielding chaps does get the irony glands flowing a tad. The other section of Spartan society were the perioikoi, which translates as the dwellers around. These were freeborn, but not Spartans. They might serve with them, and their main role in society was as the manufacturers and traders, although the latter must have been on a bartering system, as Sparta didn't mint their own coins until the 3rd century BCE. I hope this has given you a very brief overview of the sort of society a Spartan woman was born into. It was crammed full of quirks and contradictions. It was conservative, borderline paranoid, yet offered a myriad of opportunities for a woman which were not necessarily present elsewhere in Greece. Up next, I can start with the life of a Spartan from birth to what we'll call her late teens. But before then, here's a word from a fellow podcaster. Hello, my name is Alexander Goodman, and I'm the host of the Antiquity in Question podcast. We, like Neil on the Ancient History Hound podcast, talk about the ancient world, discussing topics from classical Greece, the Hellenistic period, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and even more archaeological topics such as Egypt. We release an episode once every two weeks on a Friday at 5pm. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. If finding out if Alexander the Great really was great, or what were the ramifications for the Greek world after the Peloponnesian War interesting, then do come over and give us a listen. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much for that. Get in touch if you want to put your podcast ad on any of my podcasts, as long as it's obviously ancient history. Back to the topic in hand. As I mentioned earlier, a Spartan newborn boy was inspected by the elders, the rationale being is to assess his suitability as a warrior. Now, a newborn girl doesn't seem to have faced this immediate trial, and this absence could be used to make a comment about what the Spartan state's attitude towards her and women in general was. Women didn't fight, nor were they expected to, and in this context, an examination would be largely irrelevant. Spartan women had one clear purpose, to produce warriors. The role of motherhood was tied to a woman from the day she entered it till the day she left. 
The life of a Spartan girl up until she married was quite unlike any other a woman in ancient Greece might have experienced. Given what we know of the Spartan attitude to family, it's unlikely she had much interaction with her father. This could be due to a number of circumstances. Spartan men were there to fight. Perhaps he met his end on the battlefield. There was also natural causes to consider in a society where people were susceptible to a range of life-ending diseases which we can now treat. There is also the chance that her father stuck by the Spartan expectation of only being at home in secret and then for a singular purpose. Yet this wouldn't mean that a Spartan girl grew up in an all-female environment. She might have a brother of similar age or one who wasn't yet old enough for the agoge. There are also the large number of helots and perioikoi to encounter because Spartan girls were by no means housebound. In Euripides' Andromache, the character of Peleus refers to Hermione, the daughter of Helen, and comments that no Spartan girl ever grew up modest, even if she wanted to. You never find them stone at home, no. They go up with bare thighs and loose clothes to wrestle and run races along with young men. So what does this quote tell us? Well, we are told that Spartan girls exercise with the boys or alongside them. Presumably, these were boys under seven, or perhaps those in the Agoge exercised alongside them as well. And I say alongside because I don't believe there was really much of a mix between the two. They just occupied the same spaces when undertaking these activities. Though Peleus comments on the loose clothes being worn, nudity was an accepted dress code, as it were, when the girls exercised as it was for the boys. But there is evidence that the girls wrestled, raced and threw the javelin discus. This was a rigorous exercise regime. Peleus also mentioned the girls flashing their thighs and this might be a reference to a dance called the bibasis. This dance is simple and has been described as one even I could do. It involved flicking your heels up to touch your backside. Give it a go. I tried it and got to five before every injury I've ever had and a few yet to come all made themselves known. But apparently one Spartan girl managed a thousand. Blimey. Exercise was a key component of a Spartan girl's life, but it wasn't there because of some inherent feel-good factor. It was because Spartans thought strong and healthy girls and strong and healthy young women meant they'd carry and give birth to healthy Spartan babies when they're older. Fitness wasn't just for the young. The old and even those who were pregnant would have engaged in the mentioned activities. I say activities, but one of them was reserved for religious purposes. Running was only undertaken, pun intended, as part of a religious festival or event. One such race involved 11 priestesses of Dionysus. They're either adult women, who were adult women who were virgins, or young women yet to be married. This race took place near the location where those seeking the hand of Penelope had run in similar style as part of the competition for her. There was the race at the worship of Hera, where young women wore a short peplus, which is a bit like a tunic. What was unique about this garment was that it differed from other types of peplos as it exposed the right side of the body and therefore the breast. Pomeroy has commented that this was to mimic a type of garment known as the exomis, which was predominantly worn by men. There may be a tie with this as a premarital race, and the point Pomeroy makes regarding this is something I'll pick up later, but just remember me mentioning it now. I've already spoken about Hera and Dionysus. And another deity worship was Artemis, or Artemis Orthia, as she was known in one form. Her sanctuary was along the banks of the Eurotas River, and the celebrations involved lots of dancing and singing. Lead figures found there even show women playing instruments. Artemis was also worshipped as Artemis Limonatis, at the borders of Messina and Laconia. The worship here 
took the form of lewd dancing by both young girls and women with masks, and the odd phallus was born. This again seems to have been tilted towards a fertility rite, which is somewhat unusual given that Artemis is a virgin goddess. Pomeroy suggests that Artemis was worshipped here by brides-to-be, which would make sense with the association of fertility. The presence of girls might point to a festival and worship that incorporated women across this age range. Perhaps those approaching the age of marriage had their own specific experience of it. If anything, it's an example of how inclusivity was baked into much of what we have seen in terms of the public and the religious. The dubious behaviour by the young women and its link to fertility isn't unique and is an aspect I addressed in my podcast on the Haloa, which was an Athenian festival, where the women were anything but well behaved. At that festival, this sort of activity was intended to spur on the fertility of the fields, and it's possible that lewd behaviour was a way of enhancing your own fertility, or possibly the person you were waving your phallus at. Now, I've read enough Greek tragedy to avoid ranking any female Greek deities, so I'll simply say there was one other major figure for Spartan girls and Spartan women. This was Helen, and it's easy to forget that it wasn't just gods who might be worshipped in ancient Greece. Helen was a mainstay and can be found associated with Spartan girls and women. I mentioned at the beginning, but if you want to know more about this, Bethany Hughes' book on Helen is fascinating and details the cult and strong bond that Spartan women had with her. At the springtime, the festival of the Hellenia, young women, possibly approaching the age of marriage, would anoint a plane tree with olive oil in her name. The main place of worship for Helen was the Menelaion at Therapne, but there was also an urban sanctuary as well. There were races run for her, including one which, according to Theocritus, numbered some 240 runners. Racing wasn't just done on two legs. A number of figurines of women riding horses were discovered at the shrine at Therapne. Presumably, races didn't happen at the shrine, but it could be used to suggest that horse riding was something that women did. And the link between women and horses is an aspect I'll be picking up in a moment. Roughly five kilometres south of Sparta is the town of Amyclae, and it was here where the Hyacinthia was held. This was a festival which lasted for three days, or perhaps longer. It was to commemorate the death of Hyacinthus, which meant parts of it involved mourning, but on the second day it got really going, and women of all ages were front and centre of it. To start with, and to refer back to the association with horses, young women would drive chariots in a procession from Sparta to Amyclae, these were lavishly decorated and obviously required skill in handling them. It's also argued that chariot races with female charioteers would have formed an extension to this. And there's no reason to suspect this wasn't, at the very least, an option. One of the main components of the Hyacinthia were the choruses who sang and danced. Female choruses would have been involved and formed of all different ages. And you can imagine that the girls performed a more basic routine while singing, and the young women were able to perform at a higher standard. The Hyacinthia was of huge importance to Spartan society. Even strangers were allowed to attend, and it's a great example of how women across the spectrum fulfilled important, albeit fun-filled roles, and this wasn't restricted by the daylight. A section of Euripides' Helen refers to her returning to Sparta and the nightly revels of the Hyacinthia. It would seem that for young women, it was a festival where you could show off in front of the Spartan public and foreigners by showcasing your horsewomanship and choral abilities and then get fantastically drunk. The performance of song offers an insight into how a young woman might want to be perceived, but there was a huge pressure on looks. Take the following tale recounted by our old friend Herodotus. 
The story involves Demaratus, a king of Sparta who reigned from 510 BC until 491 BC, though it's more about his wife who, typically, isn't named by Herodotus. She was, by all accounts, the most beautiful woman in Sparta. But that had not always been the case. As an infant, she was born disfigured, though my translation has her described as just ugly. But either way, we get it. Her nurse took her each day to the shrine at Throapne, which is quite a feat, and one day, as she laid her in front of it, a woman appeared who stroked the baby's head, and from that day, the baby changed and grew into a beautiful woman. Looks were important to women from an early age. Homer called Sparta the land of the beautiful women, and it wasn't just older men judging and evaluating them. It was other girls as well. In the 7th century BCE, Sparta had a poet called Alcman. This might surprise you. We aren't expected to consider Sparta as a place of artistic creativity, but in the 7th century BCE, things seemed to have been a bit different. Not only was there poetry, but pottery. It's probable that the traditional version of Sparta I've described, and the one we're most familiar with, came into play just after this, possibly at the turn of the 6th century BCE. In any case, Alcman wrote a choral poem or song called the Parthenon, which gives a fascinating window into the cultural expectations and activities of young women and girls at the time. The poem would have been performed by a female chorus with the two main characters called Hagesikora and Egido. The examination of these two women is through the optic of how they look. It's also of their feelings towards each other. Some scholars have argued that this represented some form of pairing and that girls and young women in Sparta had a form of relationship which they could acknowledge in a more formal context. This leads into a point about sexuality. The topic of sexuality in Sparta, or indeed ancient Greece, isn't the easiest to unwrap, mainly because the tendency is to project our own modern definitions, which may not map across particularly well. Not only that, they might bring over more modern concepts and traits with them, which could also ignore the nuances in place at the time. I think it's fair to say there would have been opportunities for same-sex relationships of varying degrees open to Spartan women, in the same way which was offered and accessed by Spartan men. Perhaps, though, what was more important to the Spartans wasn't who was with whom, but how well the group of girls or young women were able to perform poetry as a chorus. Spartan girls received an education which focused on poetry, dance and singing. As I've mentioned, festivals allowed them to compete with each other in these artistic disciplines, and I can imagine it was a very competitive affair. Plutarch mentions the choruses in his life of Lycurgus, whose performances had a very different function. A chorus of young women at certain festivals could sing the praises of the boys and young men, who had excelled in their training at the Goge. Worse still, they could also do the opposite, and make jokes and mock those who hadn't. Just think of this for a moment. You've got a group of young women who are composing their own songs and making men the target of possible humiliation, as well as glory, in front of those attending the festival, i.e. other Spartans. Plutarch even mentions that this might happen when the kings were attending. This is really something. The skill in composing songs and arranging them in a group with dancing to accompany the performance is no mean feat. Sourcing and understanding who to mock and who to praise suggests there was a cultural transmission in play. Though the boys and young men might have been away training, we can assume that the grapevine back then was still much of a thing. Overarching this is that you have a demographic regulating and upholding the codes of society in a public setting, and it's something we'll meet in part two, 
when we meet the terrifying form of the Spartan mother. Indeed, Mothers and Marriage is the topic of part two, which you'll be able to download when it drops in a month or so. Let's consider what sort of a picture we can sketch of the life of a Spartan woman from her early days up until the late teens, which is when she'd be looking to marry. Her life would have been tough. Festivals aside, Spartan girls weren't pampered. In fact, no Spartan was pampered. That was the point of being a Spartan. Still, they're able to exercise and receive an education in the artistic disciplines. Again, this would have been tough. Just imagine how many young girls would have been made to practice steps for hours and hours, remember lines, and learn to sing correctly, perhaps with the odd instrument thrown in for good measure. If ever there was a need for an 80s movie montage, it must have been then. Young girls were plunged into the civic festivals. They would have watched the older girls dance and drink, ride horses, wrestle and run. It was a life of competition and expectation. As with any society, she probably never realised that these would be the best days of her life, as it were. Though she may have been itching to engage in what the older girls were doing, this came at a price. The younger women performed in front of a wider public. They were constantly being assessed as future wives, and they were assessing each other as well. The young woman may have been schooled more specifically in how to run a kleros and household. Perhaps she fulfilled some minor religious function as well. Her life was aimed towards marriage and that most dangerous thing in antiquity, childbirth. Ironically, she may have looked back at the girls and wished for a time when she rode wicker chariots at Helen's festival or competed in her first chorus. But perhaps it was the opposite. She may have looked forward to the greater expectations and challenges of Spartan life. I'm a chap in his 40s trying to imagine what it would have been like to have been a young girl and a young woman some 2,500 years ago in a very different culture. And it's fair to say I missed school the day we did that one. But I hope you've enjoyed it thus far. As ever, you can find me on Twitter, Ancient Blogger, my website, ancientblogger.com, and all that jazz. Till part two, take care and keep safe.